Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. It's Thursday, May 21st, and I'm your host, Nick Seipel. Joining me once again is Motley Fool contributor Jason Hall. Jason, it's been about a month since you came on the podcast, and the last time you were on, we were talking about oil hitting minus $37 a barrel on the May contract. Today, I looked uh, at the June WTI contract for oil prices. This morning was trading around $34 a barrel. Jason, that is a massive change, a $70 swing in oil prices in the course of a month. Uh, What has happened? Running it live right now, buddy. I'm looking at Bloomberg Energy right now. Yeah, it's just under 34. Um, for those that, that don't remember, you know, um, almost exactly. I mean, you know, within one day, a month ago, uh, is when oil hit negative 38 uh, U.S. You know, West Texas crude um, because of, uh, frankly, retail investors throwing tons and tons of money at WTI. Um, or USO, right? The the was the is that the ticker USO? Yeah, the index fund uh, oil ETF. Yeah, it's a it, and basically that people had no clue what they were throwing money at futures for the the yeah the front month contract that was that was going to come due the next day and 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 you were going to be a, a bag holder on a on a uh, futures deal requiring you to take possession physical possession uh, of uh, of crude oil um, at uh, Cushing, Oklahoma. Uh, uh, hub there. Um, so prices went crazy negative that one day, right? And they, and they bounced the next day, they, they bounced back and they, but they were still single digits, right? Low tens for, for some time. So even adjusting for that anomaly, that, that weird one day, oil has, has been on a bull run for a month. I mean, it really, really has. Um, but I think this is kind of the key thing, right? So you go, you go back to a month ago and, and the issues were, were a bunch of people not really knowing what they were doing that kind of flipped the market upside down. Um, but there were real storage concerns a month ago uh, that have lessened a little bit, right? They've, they've lessened some because production has come down. Um, but, but I think we still have a lot of, a lot of oil, you know, and, and it's honestly, yeah, it's, it's hard to get optimistic about $33 oil, right? I mean, that's, that's the greater context, right? Oil's still in the 30s, the low 30s. That's not a good thing. Right. And so, so fundamentally, we got over some of those issues underlying the oil market that led uh, prices to head so negative. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet by any, any stretch of the imagination. You sent me over a report this morning. You look about across the board, just everywhere in the oil products market, U.S. crude oil inventories 10% above five-year averages, gasoline invent- inventories 10% above five-year averages, distill inv- inventories. When you hear distillate, think, uh, 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 think diesel fuel. Uh, that's about 20% over five-year averages. So still a massive oversupply. Obviously, oil price has recovered. We're seeing some wells actually uh, begin production once again. Uh, but these oil companies are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. I mean, there's a couple things, right? Most of, most of them have some sort of hedges. So even the spot prices that we're seeing and that we've seen over the past you know, month and a half, those were not the prices that, that a lot of producers were realizing for most of their oil production. They were selling it for higher prices. But the, the oil that they, that they didn't have hedged, you know, they've been getting hammered on. And those hedges aren't going to last forever. Um, but I think a lot of what we're starting to see is, is a, lot, a lot of these producers 
are, are trying to find any way they can to monetize anything they can. And there's a lot of sunk costs that are already already in the oil field, right? You've got drilled, uncompleted wells. Um, you have you have wells that have been shut in that they've already made most of the investments on that if they can invest a very small amount of capital, you know, the, the incremental cash, the incremental margin that they'd get from that oil is better than nothing, right? So I think we're starting to see some of that. Um, but but the the key point is that the 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 ones that are trying to just eke out any dollars that they can, it just pushes the full recovery you know, that much farther into the future. Absolutely, any of that incremental supply is more that we have to burn off before we get back uh, to equilibrium. Okay, so so moving on to our, our main topic uh, of the show today. Last Friday, May fifteenth, we got our quarterly quarterly look into Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio with the following of his 13F. We want to get into some of those transactions. Uh, but first, for folks who maybe haven't heard of a 13F or don't know where to go find one, uh, what can you tell them about that, Jason? Yeah, so the 13F is the document the SEC requires large investors uh, file uh, once a quarter, 45 days after the end of the quarter, uh, that discloses their holdings at quarter end. So it gives us a very limited window of a very limited period of time. So it's first of all, it's 45 days after the quarter ends. Uh, it doesn't necessarily disclose specific transactions. It just says, it's just, here's what the portfolio was the last day of the quarter, right? Um, so for a lot, for a lot of, of uh, large investors, uh, especially firms that, that focus on trading, it's, it's nearly useless, right? Um, but I think it's, it's really interesting for, you think about Buffett, you know, Buffett, you know, has created, you know, you know, billions and billions of dollars in investor value and returns by focusing on fundamentally sound companies and, and, and being an owner of those companies for as long as possible, right? So that means that there's tends to be less turnover uh, in the portfolio. And also it's a good snapshot of kind of what Buffett's thinking is, right? That's, that's the way a lot of us think about it. Um, so when there are big changes, it tends to be something that maybe is a little more noteworthy and something to factor into how you think about investing, right? So, so that's what the 13F is. And that's why, you know, it's, it's a little more informing for, for Berkshire, uh, even within the fact that it has a lot of limitations, right? Absolutely. I think that's a really good point to call out that it's important to know the investing style and strategy of the of the super investor you might want to go look into uh, through their 13F. It's somebody like Jim Simons, very quantitative. His portfolio might be turning over over the course of a quarter uh, a large number of times. But for Warren Buffett, a long-term investor, maybe that's someone uh, you want to go follow. And Obviously, everyone's very excited uh, to see what Warren Buffett's portfolio is. Everyone looks forward to its 13F to see, hey, maybe we can go follow uh, this great investor. When we look at his 13F for this quarter, however, really not a lot of activity, some very small marginal buying on airlines, which he has since said he has sold his entire stake. And there was a little bit buying, a bit of, bit of buying in PNC, but very, very marginal. Uh, Jason, when you, when you saw this report, any high-level takeaways on the buys? You know, there, there, there really weren't, um, um, and and I think we have you, you nailed it on the selling, right? The the airlines we already kind of knew about that, so that I mean there was nothing nothing new there. But I, I think if there maybe if there's one takeaway on the buying, um, you know, PNC is a commercial bank, right? That's their that's their uh, their main business, um, and you can kind of tie that in if you look at the rest of the the bank investments in the portfolio. 
uh, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, et cetera. These are large commercial banks. Yeah, they have investment banks as well, but commercial banks are kind of their, the, 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 uh, a big part of their business. And he added to, to PNC and he did not sell massive gobs of any of these commercial banks. So that to me, I think kind of counters a little bit of the idea, well, hey, Buffett didn't go big. He's got to be bearish on stocks. If I think if Buffett was really bearish, um, it would be because of concerns about the underlying economy. And I think that, that a, a bellwether, maybe an indicator would have been if Buffett had have started lightening some of his bank positions because banks are so directly exposed to the consumer economy, right? Uh, and and he didn't right. He he trimmed a little bit of uh, J.P. Morgan, I think, but it was just a small amount. Um, and he he I think he sold off three percent of the holdings, but he kept ninety seven percent of it, right? So I think that's a big indicator of really where where Buffett. And again, it's I think it's crazy to try to read the tea leaves too much on what is Buffett thinking, right? Buffett's thinking what Buffett's always thought that that American businesses are some of the best in the world. Uh, U.S. stocks are, are one of the great sources of wealth creation. And uh, that obviously hasn't necessarily changed in, <laughs> in any fundamental way. Yeah, if you look at his portfolio, in, in aggregate, it changed by 1%. The, the, the biggest move, and on, on the buy side, obviously, he juiced PNC by, by 6%, but that's only a 0.03% change in his portfolio. So obviously, not moving mountains here. Um, with these buys, the, the sales are a little bit more significant. But again, in aggregate, between all the activity in his portfolio, uh, there was only a, a 1% uh, uh, change in, in his holdings. The big sell uh, was Goldman Sachs, sold 84% um, of that holding, which he's held uh, since 2012. Also sold all of Travelers and all of Philip 66. One of those, Jason, uh, <laughs> you don't you don't necessarily agree with. Which one of that would which one of those would that be? Yeah, it's Philip 66. Anybody that's followed my writing knows that I've been pretty bullish on Philip 66 during this this the crisis. I called it, um, you know, two months ago. I called it, you know, I thought it could be the you know the biggest winner uh, of coming out of the coronavirus oil crash uh, because of the structure of its business, uh, the fact that it's not as exposed to the downside uh, because of the that business structure, and because I think it's got an incredible management team that have demonstrated that they are really really good at allocating capital managing the balance sheet and taking the company through uh, through market cycles. So yeah, I think you know, wrong is maybe kind of a, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, I, I think I think this is a company to be buying uh, despite Berkshire selling. Yeah, you talked earlier about Berkshire, excuse me, uh, Berkshire's long-term investing horizon. Everybody talks about this. And, and this is true uh, for Philip 66 as well. This is a holding they, they'd had since 2012. Yeah, yeah. So it started uh, technically. Uh, they've owned uh, the Phillips sixty six business um, since before the global financial crisis. I think oh six or oh seven, uh, when Buffett first bought Conoco Phillips. I think he invested four billion dollars into Conoco Phillips at the time. Uh, it wasn't just an independent oil producer that it is today. Uh, it was a fully integrated super major. You know. Kind of close to the scale of Exxon Mobil. It wasn't. It wasn't that big, but it was. It was. It was the second largest uh, U.S.-based uh, oil and gas integrated super major behind behind Exxon Mobil, and he he chose to chose to invest in it. And the Phillips 66 shares that first popped up in in the Berkshire portfolio uh, weren't an active buy. 
by Buffett. They were uh, awarded from the spinoff when Phillips 66 in 2012 was spun out of ConocoPhillips and you had two separate companies, ConocoPhillips, the independent oil and gas producer, and Phillips 66 was the refiner, the petrochemicals business, and the, the, oil, the oil and gas midstream um, company with the pipelines and the storage facilities. And then the 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 uh, marketing business, so the seventy six stations and the and the the other you know uh, retail gas stations that it that it operates, uh, that was the Phillips six. So that's how Buffett ended up owning Phillips sixty six to begin with, was when the businesses were uh, were separated. Right, and then he has since held that uh, since two thousand twelve. Started selling some down um, in two thousand and eighteen, and obviously finally sold out uh, the last of his stake uh, in this first quarter of 2020 we were talking before we hopped on the show jason when you look back at buffett's track record and the oil and gas industry this is this is the one industry that seems to to have given buffett uh some problems over time obviously airlines are another one he's noted yeah but airlines happened that happened pretty quick right and and the world changed in fundamental ways ways there that were a little bit a little bit different but so yeah you go back to so you know i like I said before, you know, I think calling Buff- calling Buffett wrong on Phillips sixty six might be a bit a bit subjective. Uh, he's never outright said he doesn't like the business. Uh, to the contrary, he's always spoken very highly of Phillips sixty six. Uh, spoken very highly of the management. The management team does exactly what Buffett likes. Companies that uh, manage uh, manage managers that run the companies that he invests in do. He likes for them to pay a good dividend, grow the dividend when they can, and buy back gobs and gobs of shares. Of stock, right? Buffett has regularly talked about those things, and they do that really, really well. Um, but, but I think so. If you think about um, thinking about why Buffett might have been steadily selling Philip sixty six over the years, I think in twenty fifteen it actually peaked at, at that after you know not long after you know the twenty twelve and the Conoco Phillips split. Um, you know, Buffett. I think in 08, Buffett actually admitted that it was a mistake to have bought the company. Uh, I called it a, 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 an error of commission you know he you know he didn't go to, he didn't talk with Munger about it um he, he didn't he, he just he just bought it right he just threw you know several billion dollars at it and he did it when oil was over hundred dollars a barrel and and then before the world you know caught on fire uh, for the last economic crisis um but anyway so they split it off and he started buying more and more and at one point ended up owning like 15 percent of Phillips 66 at some point reached the deal to actually trade some of those shares for a subsidiary, uh, like a specialty chemicals business that they rolled into Lubrizol, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Berkshire. So went through all of these things and, 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 and has done really well. And then at some point just started steadily selling, steadily selling, steadily selling off bits of the business. And then this last quarter, I think it was kind of like washing the, the tea, the dregs of the, out of your teacup, right? It just, I mean, there was it just, you know, went from owning tens of millions of shares to a couple hundred thousand and sold them and sold the last little bit off. But if you go back over the past dozen years, Buffett's he's been terrible at at, um, at, at picking winning oil stocks. You know, he bought you know, uh, at about the same time the whole ConocoPhillips things was going on. Uh, went pretty big in Exxon Mobil, uh, and at some point Exxon Mobil became one of its you know four or five biggest investments in the Berkshire portfolio, which is pretty concentrated in the top five holdings. You know, those are typically the, the, the uh, they make up a big bulk of the portfolio. Lost money, ended up selling all all of that. Uh, at some point, owned a little bit of National Oil Well Varco. I think I don't think it ever broke a billion dollars. So in, in Berkshire scale, it was never really big, but that didn't do very well. You know, the oil, the the offshore market crashed in 2015, 2016 uh, during the last little oil crisis. 
lost money there. Um, may have owned some core lab or something, something. So he's just hasn't, hasn't done well over the past dozen years. I mean, even I think you look at the sweetheart Occidental Petroleum, you know, deal that everybody said, well, this is, you know, this is Uncle Warren making a ton of money. He got that 9%, I think it was 9% uh, on the, on the deal when Oxy um, bought uh, Anadarko. And well, what happened this past quarter? Oxy can't, doesn't have enough cash to pay the interest. So they, they, they send Berkshire shares, yep. right? Uh, for the interest payment. And then, you know, and I think this is one of those things that uh, it's a side note. It's worth mentioning. I've seen on Twitter, people decide to go long on Occidental Petroleum citing Berkshire Hathaway's ownership of common stock and Oxy. Um, I promise you Warren Buffett has no interest in owning common stock of Occidental Petroleum. Oxy was the one that had the choice, cash or shares, right? It was Buffett couldn't 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 overrule that. Um, so the point is, I think you know, Oxy's a mess, and if Oxy has to go through bankruptcy, um, which is not out of the realm of possibilities at all, it's I mean, it's it's definitely a reasonable potential outcome. Buffett might lose money on what everybody was convinced was a sweetheart deal. Um, so I, I don't want to throw Buffett under the under the under the bus here. Um, I wrote an article. Uh, the single most important oil stock chart you might you'll you'll, you'll ever see uh, about a week or so ago, and um, it, the thing that it points out is that this has been a really really tough ugly industry for for more than a decade, with the exception of some of the oil majors. Um, very very few companies have been able to consistently make money for more than a decade, and billions of dollars of investor capital have been destroyed. And I think instead of saying, "Hey, Buffett's been bad at oil." I think it's more, I think the bigger point is even somebody like Buffett, who has proven for 60 years to be one of the best investors in history, has struggled to make money in oil. And I think in a big way, maybe this is just Buffett acknowledging that this is kind of in the too hard pile even for him. And he's just kind of, kind of moved on. Um, the, only, the only other besides Phillips 66, which I think he kind of walked backwards into before finding it as a good business. The the only other business that uh, that Berkshire has done really well by way of oil is BNSF BNSF Railways uh, shipping crude. That's been a big source of profits for BNSF for the past you know five or six years. So yeah, so that's that. Yeah, BNSF probably probably has made a decent amount of money shipping all that frac sand down from Wisconsin to uh, all the different basins as well. I mean, so yep. so yeah, supplying it's the picks and shovels, you know, selling the jeans <laughs> and, the, and the pickaxes to the gold miners. I think it's true in the in the case of fracking. As well, and to your point, oil well, has just been a very difficult industry. I'll take it a step further. It's sh- it's shipping the picks and sh- being the company that ships the picks and shovels because even the picks and shovels companies have had their hats handed to them uh, for the past five years. Uh, so yeah, so shipping them, moving them around—that's been where the money's been. Sure, and so and so we telegraph. This is a difficult industry. Uh, there's been a lot of challenges with with, with the rise of, of fracking. Oil goes up to above hundred dollars, a hundred dollars a barrel. It's it's been it's been down in the twenties. We just had it go negative earlier. In this environment that we're in, in short term with coronavirus, as well as you look back out over the past decade, how difficult it's been to make money, even if you're Warren Buffett. Why do you like Phillips sixty six today? What what do they bring to the table that's different from those challenges the rest of the industry seems to face? So the uh, something I've highlighted a, a lot recently is that. The companies that are most at risk right now, and uh, always the riskiest part of the oil and gas industry, is the closer to the well you are, uh, the more the more you're exposed to the downside. And in this place, the obvious downside is the crash in prices 
Again, oil's prices have been rising sharply the past couple of months, but we're still at prices that are going to, it's going to put a lot of companies out of business. Um, because these are the companies that are most directly exposed to prices. The producers, obviously, if they can't realize the price above what it costs them to produce, they lose money, right? And you start factoring in the debt loads and all those sorts of things. And it's really ugly right now. But it's not just the producers. You also have, you mentioned the frac sand suppliers, the companies that do the drilling, um, the companies that uh, provide drill tips and pipes and all of all of those other stuff. They're the ones that are getting killed because as producers have slashed costs, the first thing they've done is stop buying new stuff and find every way out of every contract that they're under with any service provider that they possibly can. And then, you know, really tighten the screws to drive those services costs down as much as they can. Right. So that's why it's been so very tough. Phillips 66 doesn't do any of those things. They completely avoid that business. So I mean, they miss the downside when oil or the upside when oil prices can go up. But this is an industry because of the cyclical nature. Avoiding the downside is the safest and the best play. Uh, so they're a consumer of oil. They buy oil that they use in their refineries. Uh, they have some of the best refineries in the world. And that puts them in a position of strength to be able to buy lower cost crude. So we talk about Brent crude. We talk about West Texas crude. Those are just two uh, of, of the major benchmarks. There's lots of crude that comes from various places that gets traded at very, very different prices and often much, much lower. When you have really advanced refineries, you can buy cheaper crude and you can make more money when you turn it into a refined product because the the prices for refined products are set by the bigger benchmarks, right? So that's a that's 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 a big part of it right there. So they have the ability to profit from lower co- lower oil costs in a in a big way. Uh, they they also have a really strong natural gas-driven business uh, in the midstream sector segment and in the petrochemical segment. Natural gas demand is, is, is holding up much, much better than oil because it's used in different applications, right? We use it for electricity. So yeah, sure, every factory in America has been closed for, for six weeks. And we're starting to see some of that start to open back up. So power demand has fallen, but it hasn't been cut in half. Um, so moving gas, um, storing gas has still been a pretty good business. Uh, and they also use it in CPKM, which is their 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 50/50 petrochemicals joint venture with um, with Chevron. Um, that's that's held up pretty well uh, because this is the kind of the feedstocks out of a petrochemicals business are used for a ton of stuff. So you think about plastics, you think about uh, yeah PPE, right? So that's that's you know uses a lot of plastics, bleach bottles. You know, most consumer goods packaging, right? That's plastic. So that's that's a pretty important business right now. Fertilizers. So demand for a lot of those products has been steady, um, and and even in some pla- some ways increasing. Um, and the sh- yeah, the 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 refining business. That's their that's their right. That's their cash cow, and that's not the best business right now. But the other parts of the business are helping soak up some of those losses, um, and 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 help the company kind of write things out. Then the next thing you have is you have a great balance sheet. You know, most of these really large integrated oil, oil and gas companies do have very good balance sheets, and Phillips 66 is is no exception. Um, and they have this that margin of error uh, that, that that helps helps protect the business during these these times. Uh, but I think simply avoiding the massive cash outflows that come from selling a commodity in oil for less than it costs you to produce it is a huge competitive advantage in the sector in the sector right now. And then going forward, 
this is something I really like about the business. And you know, we've talked about the downturn and the continued oversupply of oil and you know, that 200 million barrels of oil sitting in tanker ships that's not even countered in that, that, that commercial storage number that, that, that the EIA uh, gave that we were talking about at the, at the open. I, I think you have to remember that, that a company like Phillips 66 benefits from our, an economic recovery much more quickly than most of the oil patch because as refining demand, as demand for fuels goes back up, the refiners are the ones that are going to more quickly see the benefit of that, right, by selling more product. Phillips 66 is one of the biggest gasoline operator, or gas station operators in the world. Uh, it's, uh, in the U.S., it sells a ton of gasoline, right? So, again, that's an area where it's, it's set to recover lost revenues much more quickly than Occidental, as, a, as, a, as an example. So those are, those are the things that I, that I absolutely love about this business and think that make it one of the few investable companies in the, in the oil patch right now. Yeah, we talk about the, the refining part of the business. Obviously, it's been well documented that gasoline demand is starting to come back online as folks are more comfortable driving, which, which is helpful for the business. Another part of PSX refining business, however, is jet fuel. When you think about the puts and takes of people shifting their consumption more towards driving versus flying, are there margin differences between those parts of the business? business? How does that trickle down uh, to Phillips 66 uh, from a business point of view? There are. I think the, the 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 best takeaway to have on the jet fuel part of the business is it's. I mean, it's it's a single digit portion of its refining business. So yes, it's exposed. Yes, it's not. It's it's gonna it's gonna have some impact, but it's a small enough position part of the prior business before you know. Because I think we have to accept the fact that jet fuel sales have are going to be changed for five years, right? Um, it's a small enough part of the business that I think they're going to be be able to adapt, and it's not going to hurt them quickly. Um, it's not going to hurt them as, as much as I think they're going to make it up fine, right? Be able to shift to other products um, in a way that's, 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 that's going to that's work fine. And then uh, one other thing that we haven't mentioned is different from a lot of uh, these oil companies. Obviously, their business has been disrupted, cash flows impacted by, by you know, this oversupply in oil as well as the, the reduction uh, in demand. You've seen a lot of dividends get cut uh, Phillips 66 has maintained its dividend. I looked up this morning about 4.6% yield, so pretty healthy. What, what can you tell us about the dividend, Jason? Yeah, so I mean, if there's if there's one if there's a negative about it, it's 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 technically this is this is the quarter that historically since since they paid the first dividend, this is the quarter that it has been increased every single year. So they did break their record of 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 their streak of you know raising the dividend every single year. Um, but again, I think it's 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 it points to a management team that's that's being prudent and not doing arbitrary things just because they tick a box, right? So sure, it'd be great if if, if they could have you know kept that dividend growing every year for you know twenty five years and get on like the dividend aristocrats or something like that. Yeah, sure, that'd be great. But I, I much prefer a management team that says the prudent decision is just to maintain it because it's affordable where it is, um, and focus on maintaining the strength of our balance sheet and the strength of our business. So. Yeah, that's. I mean, this is again. It's it shows their their priorities as a management team, um, and and that and that it's an industry where really having a pristine balance sheet is is you know that's the most important thing in the world to do is have a pristine balance sheet, and then focus on capital. And this refining is a capital intensive business, and you have to spend money to maintain your, your facilities. It's incredibly important. Um, cause if you don't, you're stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. So number one, maintain your balance sheet. Number two, 
spend that money to keep your 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 facilities performing at the max and then like 2a is is that dividend right so i think that you know it's it just shows that their priorities are in the right place absolutely i got a quote from management uh, from the most recent conference call he says in the current Crisis liquidity is king. You have seen us take steps to defend liquidity, but the real purpose of that is to protect our investment grade credit rating and protect the dividend as they go through that. And that's really what they've done. They also raised, I believe it was $3 billion uh, in capital, uh, in debt capital to kind of shore up their balance sheet, already had a strong balance sheet coming in. So I, I think you know, for, for a lot of the points you mentioned, lack of direct exposure uh, to, the, to the commodity prices, um, strong balance sheet management that, that, that takes care um, of, of the downside uh, for shareholders has really put this company in a position to withstand a disruption like coronavirus, whereas a lot of folks in the industry really have not been. Yeah, yeah, it goes to it go it gets back to being in the right the right parts of the oil and gas business. Number one, that's where it starts, right? And then and then the things you mentioned. Okay, Jason. So so closing out, moving high level, looking at the industry, we heard Warren Buffett uh, when he talked about his airline sale. Talking about the reason he sold that stock is because the future for airlines has changed, given given uh, the way coronavirus ha- has shifted, uh, the way people are living their lives. I-, I think that applies across industries, whether it's energy, industrials, tech, anywhere. Uh, so, as you're you're incorporating uh, th- this change in what we can expect from a growth perspective in- into uh, your investment thesis, how are you doing that? How are you thinking through that process? Yeah. So, it, first of all, it hasn't really it hasn't changed fundamentally changed how I think about energy and how I think about investing in 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 energy stocks um, as as a category, right? So I think it gets back to you know the fundamentals, right? Number one. So you think about finding the best companies that are going to be the best companies of what they do for a long time, and that what they do is going to be in demand for a long time, right? And that to me continues to point back towards renewables. And some of the some of the companies that have done the best for me, like you know Brookfield Renewable Partners, um, some more recent investments that I followed for a while, but have only started to buy, you know, this year. You look at uh, Atlantica Yield. Um, so we'll throw those tickers. BEP is Brookfield Renewable. Um, Atlantica Yield. The ticker is AY. Uh, Clearway Energy. CWEN. Uh, you know these are companies that are. You know, they're kind of like the, in a way, they're kind of like the midstream companies in the renewable business, right? They produce um, renewable energy, solar and wind. Uh, they sell it on long-term uh, fixed contracts to, to uh, utility companies and industrial users. Um, and from a cost perspective, renewables are, are competitive with, 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 any, with just about any fossil fuel. So, you know, I think I continue to look there when I think about the world in a decade, when I think about the world in 20 years ago. Um, and when I look at oil and gas, I, I, you know, yeah, you know, oil prices have started to surge and there's going to be money to be made. There is. Right. And I think maybe in a couple of months, we're going to be closer to having a better view forward for, you know, even some of the more at risk parts of, of, of the, as, as we see the chaff start to separate from the wheat, so to speak. But I still, I think about it from that long-term perspective, you know, would I rather own, you know, uh, an independent oil producer that's still exposed to all of the same things, right. And the same risks are still there. You know, technology has, has, has made production uh, costs much less and has made shale viable, but it's still, there's still a low cost producer out there that still will continue to swing and, and dominate the market. And that, that fundamental understanding of that, that competitive risk uh, continues to guide me when I think about 
when I think about oil and gas. I agree with you completely, Jason. I think even when I was thinking about renewables, as you were talking, you know, obviously in the oil sector, we don't really want to touch the the, the companies that are directly pulling the oil out of the ground. And I think even renewables. You could argue they're not really directly touching the energy. They're taking the energy that already exists from the sun and then turning it into something that's useful. And when we're talking about the things that we want to invest in uh, in oil, it's really the things that are taking that energy and putting it into a form that's useful, like Phillips 66 refining, like the midstream companies that transport it to market. Just don't. If you're touching the energy directly, it's probably going to be less attractive from an investment point of view. Would you agree with that? When there's a cost to the feedstock, yes, yeah, yeah, that, right. Yeah. That's the thing. When you when you have renewables, you have a free feedstock, right? It's just figuring out the cheapest way to to tap it, and that's that's a massive, massive competitive advantage that technology is just going to make stronger. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for coming on the show as always. Absolutely. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for making it sound so good. For Jason Hall. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on. Mm-hmm.